The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome, dear listener, to Echoes of Eshetan, a solo play Degenesis podcast that lets the dice rolls tell the story. You'll find the gripping narratives in this apocalyptic setting unfold before your very ears. You'll hear stories of loss and injustice, redemption and hope. A miasma of gloom drifts across the barren wastes while nightmarish beasts roam and terrorize cities and settlements. Only mankind's inexhaustible will to survive offers the faintest glimmer of hope on the horizon. The echoing shades of the bygone peoples lingers on the wind and on the lips of survivors in this hell on earth. What stories will they tell? The Alpine Fortress acts as Central Europe's bottleneck. The Helvetics' stronghold blocks valleys and glaciers alike, jutting out of mountain flanks and casting long, shadowy passages between concrete massifs. Snowdrifts pile up in the unassailable metal buttresses braced onto the glacial ice and immutable stone surrounding it. Its very existence is a testament to the longevity of the Helvetics' mission and forward thinking over the past five centuries. In 2072, the time-worn Swiss Confederacy responded to the approaching asteroids with the utmost preparation, while the rest of the world was gripped in the terrible clutches of the HIV-E outbreak. No one knew where the rocks would impact if the Paladin defense satellites missed them, and Switzerland needed a plan B. That plan was a fortress, impregnable and resilient enough to weather any storm. Those who want to pass under the Alpine fortress must queue up with the rest of the travelers moving toward one of the gated doorways. Concrete monoliths and gun turret emplacements behind steel cover frame the entrance, forcing the multitudes trying to get in to pay up a tidy sum. Those unable to make tribute are asked to stand aside. They are, of course, welcome to cross the mountains on their own, but those who dare to do so will need to hide from sharpshooters in the deep snow, dodge slabs of falling snow and ice, warm themselves against the devastating cold, and even face savage mountain tribes. It's not worth it, most people say, and they simply pony up the toll from their already meager savings. This kind of traversal is not for the faint of heart, and may very well encompass the single biggest journey of a lifetime for most of the residents that endure the crossing of the Borken-Pergen Straits. The fortress is more than just a gateway, though. It is the refuge of the Helvetics, their hideout and last respite. Beneath meters of concrete walls, antechamber hallways, and ancient alpine rock formations lies an unceasing hive of activity. The Helvetic quartermasters in the central storage work day and night to plan out the distribution of resources among the troops on the surface. Harnesses are handed out to new recruits, food and rations are shipped from one side of the fortress to the other, and through it all, the ammo printers do their work. Each of the few printers that survive the Eshetan and are still functional can produce trailblazer ammunition at a painfully slow rate, 
requiring stringent logistical oversight at all times and demanding precision when fired. The quartermasters in charge of maintaining the machines are keenly aware that the Colt's entire structure depends on them. If the printers stop, the entire army grinds to a halt. Ammunition is the Helvetic's lifeblood, but there is never enough of it, for it is their duty to keep the fortress and surrounding area safe. After all, this is their stronghold, their shelter, and the ultimate memory of how they came to be. Without it, they are nothing. A branching path of minor descent leads the group down from the overlook and directly to another guard post. Snow shelters dot the area outside the main tunnel entrance, with space enough inside each tarpaulin-covered frame for a family of four or a traveling party of three. The group decides to bed down and get some rest before traversing the tunnel system for two days tomorrow. Sergeant Matthias Nielsen shares a campfire story about how his grandparents were among many of the miners that broke ground on the other side of this channel during the numerous years of perilous excavation. His eyes light up in the firelight as he relays the glorification of the miners' travails as the job was completed. He remembers sitting on his grandfather's knee next to a hearth in the Nielsen family home in Cremont, a tiny hamlet near a Borken River. He saw his grandfather reach directly into a fire, grabbing a smoldering coal in his mitts to light his tobacco pipe. Matthias said his grandfather's hands were as tough as the ablative armor that he wears now. He speaks solemnly about the memorials for those lost in tribal ambushes, extreme weather, and the cave-ins that are etched into the walls of the way stations beneath the Alpine fortress. Days 15 to 16. The morning sun shone on the large awning expanding over the huge metal entry doors to the tunnel systems beneath the fortress. As the group stood in line, they could feel the warmth and artificial light come from within the tunnel. They stood underneath the awning, water dripping over the sides from accumulated snowfall on top. The reinforced riveted doors were flanked by several stalwart grenadiers and opened at Matthias's request to begin the day's entry. Etta and Sudo marveled at the sprawling underground infrastructure within. The wide interior featured a painted line down the length of the shaft, which divided the channel into two sections, both abuzz with activity. The broader section was occupied and trafficked solely by the armor-clad Helvetics, their piercing white armor contrasted against the densely packed crushed stone beneath their feet. The narrower lane was strictly for the travelers that were able to pay the entrance fee and start the long trek to wherever they needed to go. Although the regular foot traffic lane was thinner by comparison, several people were able to walk abreast comfortably, and even the smaller caravans had no issue gently rolling along, passing access letters for congestion relief should anyone clog up the lane. However, the standout feature of the Helvetics lane was a dual-track rail line on which pneumatic buggies rode back and forth. Supplies and soldiers glided up and down the metal rails on rugged, hand-powered rail bikes, their train wheels supported by a third wheel extension arm stretching across the meter-long gap to the second rail for balance. Two-seater bikes comprised the bulk of the vehicular traffic, but an elevated four-seat contraption coasted over the tops of rail bikes below and slowed to a stop in front of Etta, Sudo, and Matthias. 
It lowered smoothly on hydraulic pistons until it was flush with the elevated landing platform they stood upon. A small dipping hill at the landing platform provided momentum to slow oncoming traffic and give departing rail bikes a small boost. It took two people to operate the pump lever and brake pedals on the larger platform, and after a brief introduction to the controls, Etta felt comfortable enough to fill the second position. The ingenuity of the transport system fascinated her, and she was keen to ask Matthias as much as he was willing to share about the tunnel system. Pseudo watched, unimpressed, at the hard path pilgrims and caravans in the opposite lane that crawled past her eyes. The electrical railway beneath Justician didn't require any physical input to move and was three times as fast. Score one for the chroniclers. Undulating loops of electrical cable and tunnel shoring stretched to infinity. The path was occasionally broken up by lightbox electrical grids and rail bike repair and unloading stations. The interior zone lighting flashed to signal large curves ahead. As simplistic as it was compared to the exit levels underneath Justician, it was expansive. Pseudo began to approximate how far they had traveled for the last few hours. She guesstimated the distance between the symmetrical lighting and activated her sharp mental calculus. Her eyes blinked rapidly as she tapped her fingers rhythmically together to stay focused. 85.9 kilometers, give or take 300 meters. Intake coordinates from cluster agent data puts the Reaper's Blow below 155 kilometers from the Alpine Fortress. We are over halfway. You might need some new batteries, Chronicler. We're still one click out from the Grianese Customs Station Junction, Matthias said, rather smugly. This one's estimation is based on margins of error less than 5%. The staggered spaces between light boxes and calculation are not equally distant. Hence my approximation. Apparently digging a rock tunnel isn't exact science. Or much of a science at all, really. Oh yeah. How about we drop you off with a pickaxe and shovel in your hands for two decades through blistering cold and darkness? Would that improve your error margin? Matthias shot back. Hey, there's no need for all this. Sergeant, please don't be antagonistic. Pseudo, you're too smart to rise to a simple barb. Don't you remember Kiefer and I, and how we talked in the tent in the mountains prior to arriving? Pseudo was about to cut Etta off, feeling the static noise give her the confidence in her mind to speak for herself. She opened and closed her fist, and bit her cheek instead, remaining calm. Judge, protector. She seeks peace and uses trust to keep us moving forward. Pseudo thought. Her self-control mantra allowed Pseudo to take the tenseness out of her shoulders, and she leaned back against the bucket seat of the wide coaster. The clicking and clacking of the sturdy metal wheels reverberated off the tunnel walls as the kilometers continued to drag on. Do you like your tabletop RPGs to be grim, gritty, and grounded? If so, then Legend of the Bones is the podcast for you. A mix of old-school solo D&D and dark fantasy storytelling. In Legend of the Bones, the dice rule. There are no re-rolls, no fudging the dice, no meta-currency. The roll of the bones will determine the character's destiny and no one will be spared their fate. None shall escape the destiny of bone.
The branching path that forked from the main track to the Ropens custom station took a wide turn that seemed to last forever. Hours in silence and the small lapping whooshes of the interior light posts did little to alleviate the travel, although the mood between Matthias and Etta seemed copacetic as they touched on family dynamics and past exploits. Etta shared the story of her mother's passing during a terrorist attack on the Colossus and Justician, and Matthias relayed the story of a sepsis-related pneumonia that killed his older brother when he was still a child, barely older than six or seven winters. It was a shared kinship that Etta found helped her maintain a sense of calm and presence as the distance from her home and the responsibilities ahead weighed on her. The endless turn eventually came to a broad way station that spanned both travel lanes. Pseudo had become accustomed to the speed over the tracks and had mounting concerns that they were coming in too fast to the landing platform. The large dip in the rail tracks took a considerable amount of acceleration from the coaster and thanks to the practiced hands of Matthias, had just enough momentum to crest the top of the dip again and lock its wheels into place as the platform hissed down on the hydraulic struts. They disembarked from the rail coaster to make their way past the troop of soldiers standing atop the platform. This is the last junction rail bike swap until we reach the Pergen exit. You can stretch your legs and refill your canteens just there, Nilsson said, gesturing toward a tall water tank attended by a Helvetic recruit several years younger than himself. If it's okay with you, Sudo, I'd like to get a handle on our next steps past the exit. Could you refill our canteens? A single radio click echoed through the curved ceiling. Matthias, is there a map layout somewhere? Yeah, sure. There should be a regional map in the squad leader's station house. Follow me, he replied, and added jovially to Sudo. You've come this far underground with an escort. No soldiers should give you any grief. If they do, let me know. That's my job. Sudo walked up the landing and straight toward the water filling station, making sure to avoid eye contact with the surly Helvetics surrounding her. She stepped up behind the person in front, who was topping off a wide flask. The clanner was neatly dressed in a stately-looking vest with gold earrings dangling from each ear. He stuffed the filled canteen into a dark leather shoulder bag and gruffly told Sudo to stand aside, his well-trimmed goatee disguising a sneer around his mouth. He briskly strode past her and rejoined several others dressed in similar finery gathered on the exchange platform. Brass buttons on their jerkins were muted in the tunnel's low ambient light, but were polished enough to show the minuscule reflections of the world around them. The rail platform Pseudo and company arrived on was requisitioned and a Helvetic jumped in to man the steering and pneumatic propulsion. The stately dressed group was seated and with a few strong armed pumps they took off around the serpentine curve toward the main alpine entrance junction, many kilometers away. Pseudo turned back toward the guard and stuck the mouth of the first canteen under the spigot to have it filled. She twisted the knob and the water gushed out, barely audible over the sound of liquid bouncing around the metal cavity inside the canteen. The guard spoke. Almost there. Pseudo looked up from the remaining trickle of water, locking eyes with the guard. Say again? Not much further to go, Pseudo. The water overflowed slightly from her distraction, wetting her glove as she quickly shut off the spigot handle. You know this one? she asked. The guard, a young blonde man with dark-colored roots showing through tightly cut hair, remained silent, staring through Pseudo. 
She held up her other canteens and turned the spigot on full blast to fill them as quickly as possible. Was she going crazy? Her unease was relentless. The tap was closed and she backed away, hearing the sentry say over her shoulder, Farewell, Chronicler. You can follow this current vector to reach Moreno. There it was. Keyword vector. Her gut told her it was too much of a coincidence. Her shutter contact's name rattled between her ears. The cluster had eyes on her, even beneath the base of a mountain. The stream encompasses all, Suda said shakily, without turning around. A new mobile rail platform was prepared for travel as Suda walked the short distance back to the platform. Etta and Matthias were attentively hunched over a hand-scrawled map on Etta's lap. Shorthand symbols and squiggly lines dotted the frayed paper. Sudo took her seat in silence and placed the filled canteens next to Etta. The judge thanked her and leaned in close to whisper something only the two of them could hear. Matthias and an engineer were busy patching a seal in the pneumatic lever of the new rolling platform. You were closer on the meterage than Matthias was, by the way. We'll be in Lucatore by way of Moreno soon enough. This one knows. Matthias shook the engineer's hand in thanks and pushed off hard to take advantage of the platform dip. They were off again, chewing up track in the seemingly infinite corridors under the Alpine range. As much cultural change as there was on the switchback trails up from Basel Checkpoint, it became even more apparent at the last way station the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel coming into view. The snow blindness from the western entrance was replaced with softened earth tones just out of view here. It was the last leg to migrate from Territorial Region 2 to Region 3 and the beginning of the end to the hard path. After a check-in and signed documentation between Etta, Matthias, and other officers, they unloaded from their rail coaster. Several chain-link access gates buffered progress every few meters as the mossy browns and olive green grasses drew closer outside. Soft winds filled the tunnel, carrying a pungent bitter smell. It was a hard breath to take in, sharply stinging at his nasal passages. It was truly a fragrance of a foreign land. Matthias could see Etta rubbing her nose. Welcome to Pagare, land of the chosen and choking. Here. Matthias pushed a long metal canister into Etta's hand. It weighed almost nothing, but had a coupling gasket on top. Etta pushed the coupler in and was surprised when a small blast of air puffed across her cheeks. Careful with that. That's fresh O2 in there, and it is a pain in the ass to requisition. I got two for you, Etta, so double stuff that leaky headgear. This stink isn't as potent as a yellow cloud in the valley, but it lingers far longer. Etta nodded in appreciation and put the two canisters in her travel bag. Groups of people seeking to gain entrance ahead loitered near the entry portal. Lavish travel robes and decorative patterned shirts signified an overwhelming sense of opulence among this crowd, and the clean hands inside the buttoned tunic sleeves didn't have to fumble for crumpled drafts to pay the Helvetics. It was a bit of a sensory overload for Etta and Sudo, who could smell light perfuming from female travelers mixed in with the acrid exhaust permeating the air from the reaper's blow. This class of traveler was, on the whole, much more like royalty in their well-tailored clothes with blue and green dyed fabrics. Some were emblazoned with family crests, 
marked with large depictions of animals or intricate patterns. Many faces were also similarly decorated with tattoos indicating social status or familial belonging. The majorities of eyebrows and cheekbones, though, were framed with offset milky white crosses. The cross facial markings bore a similarity to the Anabaptist's broken cross symbol, but it lacked the three-quarter circle haloing the top of the cross. Etta felt a strange sense of dissociation moving through the second-to-last gate. Her mind perceived these people and markings as alien, yet familiar at the same time. Parallel markings in a parallel land. These people were still people, but they walked and conducted themselves with far more grace, it seemed. Etta supposed any one of them could have been treated as diplomats or honored guests among the stately houses of Uptown, mingling with the upper echelon of the powerful and influential judges. The squeak of the last heavy gate snapped Etta back to reality as she and Sudo took their first steps onto true Pergan soil. Matthias kept pace with them, but a commotion arose just ahead, and through the shoulders of the crowd, Etta could see an elderly man being ridiculed and pushed around. He stumbled onto a mossy patch, mud and grass streaking across his striped pant knee. Tattooed faces with the white cross laughed and jeered as they pushed him down again into the damp earth. Only the man in the middle, headband and pants, streaked with grass and dirt, seemed unamused. Matthias motioned for another Helvetic as he moved to intercede and stuck his hand out low behind him, signaling Etta and Sudo to stand out of the way of the gathered crowd. The old man yelled back over the booze and mocking laughter. I have a right to be here and preach the enlightenment of the Numa in peace. You cannot exile us. You cannot extinguish our heart's unquenchable torch flame. A thinly mustached man yelled in response, poking his many-ringed finger in the old man's face. You're wrong, you decrepit fanatic. You and your ilk fear the engines of progress in your simple-minded wheat fields. The Lombardis have staked their claim now. This is the new age, and there is no room for your falsifying dogma that keeps people in rags and poverty. Matthias shouldered through the onlookers that tightly encircled the elder. The well-adorned Lombardi clan went to push the gray hair again, but was checked with a quick knee to the gut. The Lombardi wheezed hard and doubled over as the spry elder drew a small dirk from his hip scabbard and brandished it at the now skittish crowd. Old age or new, steel draws blood just the same. Who is willing to die for their faith among you moneylenders, vipers, and usurpers? Spittle flew from his face with rage. Matthias approached with open palms and a show of peace, while the other Helvetic flanked him with a finger on his trailblazer rifle. Settle down. This isn't the field of combat. You're free to preach along the Eden route and trade route passes, but not in the Ruppin's customs perimeter. Come on, I'll get you an escort. The old man steadied his grip on the blade, drawing back the tattered red bandana to reveal a three-dot tattoo, faded with age, covered in scars, but still distinct against the forehead as the mark of a touched brother of Rebus. A hush fell over the packed crowd. And you, you mercenaries are too deep in the Lombardi's pockets to give a good damn about Anabaptist depression. Gun me down if you must but the golden-tinted wheat of the ascetics will sprout from the nourishing blood of my veins spilt on this ground. Soil made sacrosanct, and a newly bathed dawn, and with the... The old man caught a gasp in his throat 
and his face savagely contorted in pain. A patron stepped out from his shadow, holding a bloodied knife in his palm. Too much talk. No wonder the liturgy at Anabaptist cloisters lasted morning, noon, and night. The crowd chuckled callously as the old man crumpled face down, still gripping the dirt tightly as he fell. Matthias walked up slowly and kicked the blade from the old man's hand, vitality abandoning his fist and eyes in a final breath. He turned to chastise the murderer, who wiped a speck of blood from the offset white cross on his cheek. Anything in your way is expendable, eh? Don't think this won't get filed in a report. Bergamo isn't beyond reproach when its residents draw blood on Helvetic army ground. The clanner calmly wiped the remaining blood from his palm with a rag. Illegal Anabaptist rhetoric, quelled by sharp Lombardi diplomacy. There's your report. Here, for your time. The Lombardi clanner reached inside his side-robe pocket and pulled out two glittering silver coins, tossing one each to Matthias and his fellow recruit. The heavy coin in Matthias's palm reflected the striking profile of a man in a turban with a large nose and sharp jaw gazing stoically into the distance. The opposite side featured decorative filigree surrounding overlapping triangles. He looked back up to find the clanner had vanished into the crowd, breaking the line of sight and leaving the rest to disperse. Matthias rejoined Etta and Sudo, looking dejected and remaining quiet. Etta attempts to intuit the mood with a quick instinct plus empathy check. From how she heard him talk about his grandparents, Etta knows that Matthias carries pride in his Helvetic service without arrogance. Having to embrace his role as a mercenary under the ruling thumb of coin and commerce must have been deeply embarrassing. But like herself, Etta knows orders that come from up top down to the grunts below only care about one thing, keep the peace and follow orders to protect those who pay you for it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Echoes of Escheton. The music for this show is provided by Tabletop Audio, original 10-minute ambience and musicscapes for your games and stories. I'd like to thank my voice cast, Lyric, as Etta Youngbao, Muenmos as Pseudo-19, and Wingnoot as Sergeant Matthias Nielsen for bringing them to life. Did you know you can meet the voice cast and me, Coop the GM, on the Echoes of Escheton Discord server? Discord is an online community where you can share messages, voice and video chat, and post in our live community with listeners from around the world. You can find the link to join the Echoes of Escheton Discord server in this episode's description, on my Twitter profile bio, or on the homepage of my website, echoesofescheton.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are multiple ways to do so. You can share this post-apocalyptic fiction podcast with a friend, like and retweet show announcements on Twitter, or leave a rating and written review on your podcatcher of choice. And as of this week, I now have a Ko-fi donation page to sponsor cool projects for Discord server members and to support the show. You can consider donating to my most recent goal via the Kofi website at kofi.com forward slash echoes of Escheton. Dear, dear listeners, thank you for all of your help so far in helping make this show a success. I have more things planned on the horizon for season two, and I can't wait to share it all with you. Until next time.